Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of uh, Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way of the Lord, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when they saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was being bap- or where he was baptizing, they said, "He, um, sorry, he said to them, you brood of vipers." Who, war- who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in the in keeping with repentance, and do not think. And do you not think you can? Sorry. And do you not think you can say to yourselves, "We have Abraham as our father"? I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every good tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Hmm. This is where the Lord. Hmm. Amen. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jeremy and Caden. Well, sifting is a technique. Maybe you've heard of sifting. Um, it's a technique that's uh, used across many disciplines and in many different ways. Um, the dictionary defines sift, S-I-F-T, um, as to examine something thoroughly so as to isolate that which is most important or useful. Synonyms for sift are scrutinize, sort, inspect, search, probe. Sifting is used in cooking and in construction. It's used in the office and out in the field. It's used in police work, in sports, and at the university. When detectives are faced with a crime scene, they have to have some kind of a method to sift out what evidence is useful and what is not, which persons are real uh, suspects and which ones are not real suspects. When universities receive thousands of applications for prospective students, they must have a a process by which they sift through them to separate out those that meet their standards and those that do not meet their standards. When coaches and scouts evaluate players, they have to have methods for sifting through athletes to determine which ones are maybe capable or which ones are maybe fit for the team. I remember when I was trying out for the baseball team at UNC Charlotte some years ago because uh, I didn't, I wasn't recruited. I actually ended up walking on. I was kind of a late bloomer, and uh, so I didn't, I didn't hit the prime time when when scouts come to high schools and whatnot and start um, looking at players. But I had a few people make phone calls and kind of put their two cents in for me or whatever. But I remember when I was trying out for the baseball team at Charlotte, 
I was up against dozens of other walk-on players and I remember being in the bullpen with a long line of guys waiting to um, to show the coach what they had, you know, to throw their fastball, their curveball, whatever, to do that sort of thing. He'd tell you what to throw and where to throw and then he'd ask you some questions. You know, what was their criteria? What, what, what sort of things were they looking for? What were they using to sift through the various uh, prospective athletes? Was it, you know, was it their velocity or their accuracy? Was it their composure, their consistency, their size, their stamina? Was it experience? Probably a combination of many things. So you get the sense, right? Sifting is something that many people do across many disciplines. Well, God's kingdom, interestingly, is no different. God is sifting. There's a sifting that's happening that has happened and will continue to happen. God is separating the wheat from the chaff. Our passage today records some of the words of a man named John the Baptist. We're going to talk a little bit about him in just a moment. He says that God, just like an old Jewish farmer, is sifting the wheat from the chaff, the usable from the unusable. And he has a winnowing fork, which I guess is long looking like pitchfork thingamajig, that he is clearing the threshing floor with. At the threshing floor, you'd have oxen and cattle that would stomp upon the sheaves and would separate out the good stuff from the bad stuff, the wheat, which I guess was weightier, or the grain, from the unusable parts. And then they would take this winnowing fork and toss it in the air, the, the sort of what had collected there on the floor. They would toss that mixture in the air and the wind would blow away the chaff. Whatever was unusable would blow away, leaving only the good grain on the floor. The Old Testament uses this imagery too. If you were to flip to Psalm chapter 1, you're going to read about, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor sits in the way, stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And upon his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted next to the streams of, of water. Well, it goes on to say in verse 4, The wicked are not so. The wicked are not like those that meditate upon the law of the Lord and never cease to bear fruit. The wicked are not so. It says this, They are like chaff that the wind blows away. All the weeds in the chaff either blew away or were burned up. This morning, I want us to ask ourselves a question. Okay, There's going to be many questions maybe we ask, but I want you to ponder as you hear the Lord speak to you this morning, to which group do you belong? Are you destined to be taken into the Master's house and used for some noble purpose like the grain of the wheat that remained on the threshing floor? Or are you destined for the fire like the weeds and the chaff? Are you destined for God's house or God's wrath? This is a hard question to ask. But Matthew tells us today a word from John the Baptist. And John... Uh, as it says here today, was preparing. Okay, this is a preparative word, a pre preparatory word. John is trying to get us ready for something. Okay, he was the voice, as it says, of one crying in the wilderness, "Prepare ye the way of the Lord; make straight paths for Him." John was sent to clear away. The King was coming, and his main calling was to announce the King's coming. Back in ancient times, maybe you all knew this, back in ancient times, if a king was coming to a town, trumpet, trumpeters would announce his coming with trumpet blasts and would say, the king's coming, so 
Get yourself ready, you know. Don't, don't continue doing whatever it is you're doing. Prepare yourself, okay? The king is coming. The king was about to appear. John was given a similar task, okay? John was given the task of letting people know the king of kings has come down. He is here, and I'm going to let you know, okay? So John was preparing the way. He was announcing the coming of the Lord. Well, as we think about the King who has come and is coming again this Advent season, Advent means coming, we need to ask ourselves if we're ready, okay? This is where the wheat and chaff stuff comes in, okay? How you answer this question may be indicative of how you would answer the other question. As John says in our passage today in verse 12, Jesus is like that farmer. Okay, Jesus is the one with the winnowing fork and he is sifting. Okay, He's come to sift and to separate. So maybe the question is, okay, Jesus is sifting and separating. The question is, okay, well what are his criterion? Okay, Just like the baseball coach or maybe the university, what, what are the criterion? What are the things that he's looking for, right? What are the things that would maybe put me in the wheat category and not the, the chaff category? How do we prepare? What does God expect of us? How do we ensure that we're not blown away like the chaff or discarded and thrown into the fire like the weeds? Okay, These are probably the questions we're asking. How do we enter into the Father's house? How do we go there to be used for a noble purpose and not just thrown out like the weeds? Well, what I hope we're going to see is this, okay? Just to give you a, a foreshadow of where I'm going. Jesus has come to sift out the proud from the humble. Those who think that they're righteous in their, themselves from those who look to God for their everything, especially their salvation. That's the sifting that's taking place. But before we jump into all of that, okay, let's take a quick look at this man, John the Baptist, real quick. Talk to the kids a little bit about John, so you're going to hear some of that again. But the last uh, prophecy in the Old Testament is in a book called Malachi, okay? Malachi is uh, once in a while you're hearing him pronounced. <laughs> um, and it says this in verse uh, 5 and 6 right there at the end. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. After this prophecy was given, God was totally silent for 400 years. 400 years. He never sent a prophet. No one went to Israel to speak. It was quiet. So Israel had gotten used for a couple thousand years of having a prophet, right? Someone come and, and say, thus says the Lord, and to instruct the people. None of that happened for 400 years. Then one day, in walks John the Baptist. According to Jesus in Luke 1.17, that prophecy in Malachi was fulfilled in John the Baptist. John was this coming Elijah. Now if you were to go back to Luke chapter 1 and read in context there, a little bit before verse 17, you're going to read about Zechariah, a priest, okay, and his barren wife Elizabeth. Zechariah gets up one day to go to the temple where the lot had fallen to him, which was a huge privilege. As a priest, this would have been one of the biggest days in Zechariah's life to go into the temple and to offer up incense before the Lord. He goes in, 
And the angel Gabriel appears to him. There's an angel. And he speaks to him these words. It says, Then the angel of the Lord, this is from Luke chapter 1, The angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. Just understandable. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or any other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their parents to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's that Malachi prophecy, right? That's him. John has showed up. This was John, the coming Elijah guy that's going to prepare the way for God. Okay, well some of you men maybe out there think that Jesus is for sissies, okay? Some of you ladies have a hard time getting your men to come to church. I know what that's like. My mother struggled with this same dilemma growing up as, as a boy. The same fight week after week after week with my dad. But I tell you what, it's just an excuse, ladies. Uh, some men can't come because of work or other obligations. I get that, okay? I, and I'm not pointing any fingers. But the Bible won't let us get away with the claim that Jesus and religion is just for the ladies. Okay, that religion makes you soft. That religion is for sissies. Just look at John. Just look at John the Baptist. Tim, if you'll pull up that picture. This is the one I showed to the children. Um, in the top right there, okay? <laughs> this was a man's man here, okay? Of course, this is a, you know an approximation maybe of what he looked like, but <laughs> you think that this yeah you think this camel skin that's being mentioned here is some kind of a fancy fur type coat thing like what we have today? No, this was one of the roughest, cheapest, most unsophisticated garments of that time period. One uh, commentator that I was writing or reading, excuse me, on this says that the honey that our passage today mentions that John the Baptist ate was not the sort of thing that we imagine beekeepers cultivating and packaging us uh, while using all their protective gear and equipment. It was not honey that John collected at the local co-op or the market. John lived in the wilderness. This was wild honey. There would have been swarms of bees. And yet he went right after it. This is my food, right? There was a, there was a ruggedness to John, a braveness, okay? Um, courage. He was strong. This was a man's man. Yet what do we find, okay, with John here? We don't see him saying, I'm too tough for that sissy stuff. We, don't find the, we find, in fact, the exact opposite. In fact, he says, I'm not even worthy to untie the coming Messiah's sandals. Far from thinking he's something special, he says, I can't even untie the, untie the Messiah's sandals. We don't find pride with this manly guy. Instead, for all his rough exterior, we find a tender heart. One that says, it's not about me, it's about him. 
It's about this coming one, the Lamb of God. I'm not even worthy to touch his shoes. Something else we find out about John here in this passage is that he was a man who preached with a sense of urgency. Okay, He preached with a sense of urgency. I worked at Target for a year during my time in seminary. It was a very interesting time in my life. got about a thousand stories from that year um, at Target. But I worked the graveyard shift so, uh, so from like 1 a.m. to 8 or 9 a.m. several times a week. It was borderline torture. Okay? I'd have to go there, do this manual labor, and then go to class all day, and then come home to my kids and my wife. I didn't sleep a lot, needless to say. I would come home, uh, go to class, whatever. I was exhausted. But one of the things I remember when I was at, at Target was they would say this thing to me all the time. They'd come over, with a sense of urgency. With a sense of urgency, please. With a sense of urgency. And they'd go around saying this to everybody. The, you know, the LODs, the leaders on duty as they called them. Um, basically they were saying, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. I'm like, dude, it's... Like 3.15 a.m. you kidding me? Like, I'm like, I got a lot going on here, man. Chill out, you know? So most everyone was dragging, but we heard that expression with a sense of urgency all the time um, from our leaders, okay? And it kind of became like the background noise, honestly. John preaches this message, though, with a sense of urgency. John knows, as he says in verse 7, that a day, a day of wrath is coming. He knows, as he says in verse 2, that the kingdom of God has come near. One scholar points out that the word, one of the words for judgment in the Greek is the word crisis, from which we get our English word crisis. John knows that what he's doing uh, here down at the waters preaching and baptizing the people is just, it's not just an empty ritual, okay? It's not something light. It's not something easy. It's serious. Okay, and in the words of, of R.C. Sproul, it is a moment of supreme crisis because the kingdom of God has come. It is at hand. It will be heaven for those who receive it and wrath for those who do not. John preaches with a sense of serious urgency here. But what's he preaching, okay? Maybe this is the question. What's, what's, let's look at what he's preaching a little bit more. What's his message about? What does God want to say to us this morning through this rugged man, John the Baptist? Well, the first thing I think that God wants to say to us through his messenger is that repentance is necessary for everyone who is to enter the kingdom of God. It's necessary for everyone. There are, there are no exceptions here, people. Absolutely none. What's amazing is that Jesus Christ himself, though having nothing to repent of, right after this passage today, what's he do? He goes under the waters of baptism. He says, I'm going to fulfill all righteousness. I'm going to do this thing even though I am technically exempt. Because he was doing it for us people. To fulfill all righteousness for us. Well, notice right away in uh, verse 2 that John was preaching to the people saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. John was also calling the people to be baptized. So repentance, clearly right up front. Repent, be baptized, kingdom of God is near. These are the, the core elements of his message, at least that we know about. Okay? Verses 5 and 6 say this, People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea, the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Confess, repent, be baptized. Okay? 
Baptism here, of course, is symbolic. This would have maybe been a slightly different kind of baptism than what we have today in the Christian church. Of course, Jesus hadn't died yet. He hadn't risen yet. He hadn't ascended yet. None of that stuff had had happened quite yet. But I'm not going to get in too much to the differences or the nuances of all of that. But baptism here is symbolic. Not to say it's not doing something, that there's not something supernatural here happening. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying mainly it's, it's symbolic of something that's happening inside of us. It's something we do to act out what is going, within us, going on within us. It's an outward acknowledgement of spiritual truths that we believe deep inside of here. Okay? Baptism's not another thing on our list that we check off. Ah, I got baptized today. Ah, yeah. Feeling good. It's not another thing that we just check off on our list to say we've done for God. It's an act of repentance, at least in part. Baptism is more than that. But it's an act of repentance. Okay? Repentance, however, is not just confession of sin. It's not saying, God, I'm sorry. It's hard to convey this to the children. That's, that's where it starts, right? That's a part of it. It's a radical, life-altering change of direction. It's saying... I'm headed towards destruction. I have got to turn completely around and go some other way, okay? It's an acknowledgement that in our deepest places, all of us are sinful. All of us. Though all that we do and think apart from God is tainted and stained by sin. There's no need for repentance. If you think somewhere in your heart, you can figure it out. If you think, I'm pretty good, maybe I can make it work somehow... That's not repentance, people. Repentance says, I can't do it. I'm incapable without you, God. If you believe somewhere in there, there's something good, you haven't truly repented. You haven't truly seen the depth and the magnitude of your need for God. A life of following God is one marked by repentance every day, saying, God, I can't do it today. I will wreck this train real bad if you don't help me. As John says here in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, live a life of repentance. It's not just a, hey, come get dipped in the water, feel good about yourself, and then go about your way. No, it's a life. Your life, bear fruit. The fruit should be fruit of repentance in your life, okay? At its heart, repentance is simply this, okay? God... I cannot save myself. You alone can save. Please save me. If you don't believe this, if you again think that there's something that you can do to be saved, you're a Pharisee. You're a Pharisee. Or you at least like the Pharisees. And what does he say about the Pharisees in verse 7? You brood of vipers. They didn't think they needed to repent and be baptized. We're good. They came down to suntan. They didn't come down to get in the water. We're good, John. You know that we messed up from time to time, but we ain't like those people down there, those dirty people. We've got to get in the water. People that think this way are like the chaff that blows away in the wind, and they don't get collected and take it into their father's house. Why would they? They don't see the need for it. And this leads to the second part of what God wants to say to us through John this morning, I think. And that is that no one is good enough to save themselves. Tied right in with the first point, okay? No one's good enough. You ain't going to save yourself. 
R.C. Uh, Sproul, he was very helpful to me in, in putting some of these, uh, these parts in my message together. He says in his car- commentary on this passage that this message would have, quote, scandalized the Jews. His message of baptism. Why? Why would this have scandalized the Jews? Well, in his words, because the only people in that time baptized prior to this time were those converting from paganism to Judaism. These converts, Gentiles, were considered unclean, so they were required to participate in a symbolic washing of their filth so as to become worthy to join the community of Israel. The convert, the convert baptized himself as if he were taking a bath before he could join the community of Israel. Then out of the wilderness comes this probably pretty dirty man himself, rugged man, John the Baptist, saying to Israel, not to the pagans wanting to join the Israelite community, but to Israel, your connection to Abraham is meaningless. It ain't going to save you. Your connection to Abraham is not enough. God will not save you just because you're a descendant of Abraham. You are still unclean, is what he says to him. Look at verses 8 and 9. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not think that you can say to yourselves, We got Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. We, of course today, nobody goes around saying that. I'm a descendant of Abraham, right? Well, of course, if you're Jewish, you may, you may do that. But for us, right here in this room, most of us, we don't go around talking like that. We might say other things. We might say things like, well, I go to church. In fact, I've gone to church for the last 20 years. Or maybe some others will say, I'm a pretty good person. I helped old Jimmy John out of the ditch the other day when his tractor got stuck. Or maybe we say, you know, I don't do drugs or sleep around with women all over the place, maybe you know, here and there, but not all over the place, and I certainly don't break up people's marriages. I'm friendly to my neighbors and I pay my bills. Many of you may visit hospitals or send cards or donate money to the church or to other organizations. You do all kinds of good things, and I'm not condemning any of that at all. But don't be tempted like the Pharisees. Here's the trick, okay? Don't be tempted to think it's enough. To think that by doing good deeds, you can somehow earn God's approval. Because you can't do it. You can't do enough. Okay, the third part here. third part and final part of what God wants to say to us through John this morning is this. Repent of your religion. Repent of your religion. Verse 7 again, this again, tying right in with the previous piece. These kind of go together really closely here. It says that some of the Pharisees and the Sadducees had come down to the waters. These were the religious leaders of the day. They, they were rule keepers and enforcers. They, they were proud of the fact that they were descendants of Abraham. They rejoiced in their position. Okay? They rejoiced in the fact that you know, we get to teach the people of Israel. And they were very proud about it. Nothing wrong with being excited about what you do. But they were proud about it, okay? They were proud that they were descendants of Abraham, that they had obeyed the law and that they were circumcised. They were proud of the position that they had and thought themselves, quite frankly, better than most. Okay? Especially the unclean pagans and Gentiles. And now John the Baptist is saying, Hey, y'all want to get down in the water? Y'all want to get down here with me? Because y'all need it. And they were like scoffing at this. But I promise you... None of you 
are as good as the Pharisees were. Ain't nobody in here that can touch them. Okay? None of you are good like the Pharisees were. Oh, how these people prayed and fasted and they knew the Scripture and they went to every event and festival. They were careful not to contaminate themselves with sin or by being in compromising situations. They would have nothing to do with it. They tithed. They gave to their fellow man. Outwardly, at least, they loved God and their fellow Israelite. Most of all, they were descendants of Abraham and they had, they were, had inherited the promises. Okay? They're like, we got it made. But their error was in thinking that those things were somehow the way that they had favor with God. This is how we have favor with God. All this religion and stuff that we do. That because of those things, God might spare them in the coming judgment day. John goes as far to call, as to call them a brood of vipers. A brood of vipers. Because he knows they have not come down to the water to acknowledge their need. They have not come down to humble themselves or to admit their faults or their need for cleansing. They've come down to scrutinize. Hmm, what are these posers down here doing at the water's edge? They have come down to the waters to examine what John is doing. You know, they're, they're criticizing, they're scrutinizing. They did not truly believe that God alone could save them. They looked to their own merits and good deeds to tip the scales in the ends. That's going to tip the scales. We're descendants of Abraham. We're better than those other people. All that think like this or have this pattern of thinking in their minds are like the chaff that blow away. Okay? And I know some of us right here in this room struggle with this. We all struggle with this to a degree of thinking that the things we do somehow make us measure up in the end or give us favor with God. But John rebukes them and says that their connection to Abraham is not enough. God will not save you because of your pedigree or your performance. No one is exempt from this, from this call right here to repent and be baptized. All must humble themselves and acknowledge their need for God. Religion will not save you. Only God can do that. Okay, well, what does all this mean? So I've given you three points about John's message here, okay? What does it mean? Okay, we're going to wrap it up with this right here. John's work was preparatory, okay? John was preparing the way. Preparing the way. Jesus, again, comes on the scene right after this, right? Comes on the scene, right? Right following this passage, if you read on in chapter 3. He was the one who was going to take that winnowing fork and separate the wheat from the chaff. He was going to do some serious sifting. John wanted the people to be ready for him. He wanted the people to know that the only thing that could save them was this coming king, this other guy. John wasn't preaching about himself. And in order to receive Jesus, this is where it all meets, all the, all the rubber meets the road here, okay? In order to receive Jesus, what do we do? Do we look to our religion? Do we look to the things that we've done? No. We must empty ourselves, not just of our sins, but of our good works in all our religion. Because it, it doesn't amount to a hill of beans in the end, people. We must see plainly that nothing but God's mercy can save us. Nothing. Advent is the story of how God came down, not because we're good enough. He didn't come down because somehow we coerced Him out of the sky, threw 
little rope up there, tied around his leg, and yanked him right on down. Come on down, Lord! He came down in sheer mercy and grace. He came as a babe in a manger. Think about that. Why did Jesus come as a babe in a manger? To show us that this is what it's about. Being empty. Being poor. Broken. Needy. Come to me, he says, just as I have come to you like a child. A helpless, needy, dependent child. And let me save you. Amen. Father, we... We just acknowledge our tremendous difficulty with this, God. Even as I preach these words myself and share them with your people, God, I know that I I struggle with this. God, it's so hard. Somehow, I think all you desire of us is is to let go, to trust, to release to you, to just look to you, Lord. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I cling to empty ourselves of all our good works all our sins everything that we think either might get in the way of us getting to God or might be somehow helpful in in making a way uh, to God Lord all of those things we need to do away with them Jesus is in a whole other category he comes down and says I am the answer believe in me whom God has sent God help us this Advent to do that, to empty ourselves of all these things and just to receive the babe, to receive him, helpless, dependent, needy, and to come to him just as he has come to us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.